If you'll get out your sermon outline, that would be great. I don't know if I should say welcome home or not to Stephen Sue. We're glad to see you. We're sorry about the circumstances. Uh, for those that don't know, Steve will be having knee surgery the 21st. Okay, so pray for that, and uh, we will catch up with you. But it's been a joy to sort of follow the adventure, um, and we look forward to doing it again. So if you will turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 32. This is a long passage, so we're going to kind of go through it as we go through the sermon. I'm not going to read the whole thing right now, but let's, uh, let's go ahead and get started with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and as always, we need it. We need to know that everything we need for faith and practice comes from the mouth of the Lord. We need to know that when your word is open before us, it is the word of the Lord. Thank you that Jeremiah is a prophetic book that takes our doubts and replaces them with the knowledge of you. Thank you that this passage takes our bad times and replaces them with good promises. Help us to hear and understand it, believe it, and obey it. And so we pray, speak through your word this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. Now some of you may remember the movie Field of Dreams, in which Kevin Costner starred as a farmer who decided to build a baseball field on his farm. The film debuted on May 5th, 1989, and so it celebrated its 30th anniversary last Sunday. It was on TV a lot, and I only watched it twice. Field of Dreams is a fantasy drama about baseball and the pursuit of a dream and the reconciliation between a father and a son. Although the film borders on the thoroughly unbelievable, with a voice talking from a cornfield, old ball players walking in and out of a center field heaven, and time travel back to 1972, and then even farther back, it somehow gets us to suspend our disbelief because of its sheer humanity. There are four storylines in the movie that all pile one on top of the other, and each storyline is about redemption. The movie is based on a marvelous book called Shoeless Joe by W.P. Kinsella. In the movie, the farmer's name is Ray Kinsella. And the most familiar line in the movie comes from a mysterious voice that Ray hears urging him to build a baseball field in his corn crop in Dyersville, Iowa. And what Ray hears is, if you build it, he will come. The he in this case is the legendary player Shoeless Joe Jackson. And so Ray plows under acres of corn in order to build a baseball field. And of course, Shoeless Joe, played by Ray Liotta, shows up. And Shoeless Joe asks him, is this heaven? To which Ray answers, no, it's Iowa. One of my favorite lines comes right before that when Joe asks Ray to pitch to him. And Ray goes out to the mound uh, with a bucket of balls and then stops and says, don't we need a catcher? And Joe, grabbing an old wooden bat, says, not if you get it anywhere near the plate. <laughs> 
For those that aren't familiar with Shoeless Joe Jackson, he was accused of taking a bribe in the 1919 World Series and was subsequently banned from the game. Now on the field of dreams that Ray built, this disgraced man gets another chance to play ball. And later on, the rest of the disgraced Chicago Black Sox, as they came to be known, they show up and the field of dreams serves as their means of redemption. And it's the first of these four redemption stories in the movie. There's a number of other great lines and better stories from this film, but I'm going to save them for later on and another day. But the tension in the film comes because Ray is faced with the dilemma of either holding on to his field of dreams or selling the farm to save the life he knows. His brother-in-law counsels him with these words, you're going to lose your farm, pal. You're going bankrupt and you'll default on your loan. Sell now or you'll lose everything. How could you plow under your crop? You're going to lose everything. And as the story goes, Ray holds on to his field of dreams at the possible cost of losing everything he has. But he keeps hearing, if you build it, he will come. Now, I'm telling you this, or am I telling you this, just because I love baseball movies? Absolutely. Um, but also because it relates to Jeremiah 32, which is our passage for today. Because near the beginning of our text, God tells Jeremiah to buy a field of dreams. His cousin comes to Jeremiah, encouraging him to buy his uncle's field. And according to the rights of inheritance, Jeremiah is given the first opportunity to buy this field. And we read this in verses 6 and 7. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. And unlike Ray Kinsella's field, this field is totally real. However, buying it is just as crazy as Ray building it. Because no matter how you look at it, this is a bad time to buy good land. This is a bad time to buy good land. We'll start with verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem. And Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord? Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face, and see him eye to eye. And he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall remain until I visit him, declares the Lord. Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. So that's basically the charges against him, that he has prophesied that against Zedekiah. Verse 6, Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. 
Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, Buy my field. That is at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions in the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neria, son of Masia, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. So if you've ever bought a house, this all sounds familiar. You've got to do most of this stuff. I charged Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel that they may last for a long time. So that's the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of a safety deposit box. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. So just to catch you up, Jeremiah is in prison. He's been saying everything that God wants him to say. He's been obedient to all that God's asked him to do, and he finds himself in prison just as the Chaldeans, which is, are the Babylonians. So that's sort of like Chaldeans is like saying Americans, and Babylonians is like saying New Yorkers. And so the Chaldeans are about to overthrow Jerusalem. And essentially what Jeremiah has been saying is repent. Turn back to the Lord, or the Chaldeans will burn this place to the ground. And he keeps prophesying this good news over and over again. And the leaders are tired of him. So they put him in prison. So here's Jeremiah, here's faithfulness, he's in prison. The Chaldeans are at the wall, it's almost over. And when all this is said and done, Jeremiah gets to go into captivity with the people who imprisoned him and didn't listen to his call to repent and see the city saved. So it's a tough ministry. And that's why it doesn't make any sense for Jeremiah to buy this field. At the time Jeremiah learns of his right to buy this field, he's been locked up by King Zedekiah, verse 3, for prophesying the capture of Jerusalem. Why should Jeremiah buy a field when he didn't even know if he'd ever be released from prison to enjoy it? I mean, buying a farm becomes a lot less appealing when there's a good chance of buying the farm, if you know what I mean. And on top of the whole prison thing, don't forget, there's a war going on. Look at verse 2. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem. Jeremiah can look out his prison window and see the siege mounds the Babylonians are building in order to conquer the city. They're described later in verse 24. Behold, the siege mounds have come up to the city to take it. Why buy this land when the Babylonians are about to conquer all the land? And it appears that even if Jeremiah bought the land, there's no way he's ever going to be able to enjoy it. He is not married and has no family, so he doesn't even have any heirs to pass it on to. And during the last days of the fall of Jerusalem, the bottom fell out of the housing market. 
literally. We'll see in chapter 33, things were so bad, entire houses were torn down in this desperate attempt to shore up the city walls. It hardly seems like a good time to buy. Imagine trying to persuade the bank to give you a loan when your city is surrounded by Babylonians. It's the worst time to buy. The city's under siege, the prophet's under arrest. But then Hanamel shows up, and he visits Jeremiah in prison. Long-lost cousin Hanamel. He's one of the great characters and all-time wheeler-dealers of the Old Testament. There's someone like Hanamel in most families. You're probably thinking of him right now. He's the cousin everyone avoids at the family reunions because he's always trying to sell you something. You know, you haven't heard from him in years, and here he is slapping you on the back. Listen, if I got a deal for you, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us why Hanamel shows up and gives Jeremiah the option uh, to buy this field. Maybe he's just trying to make a fast shekel before the Babylonians take over. Maybe he's in debt and he needs to sell it to get money to buy food. We have no idea. But he appeals to the prophet's sense of family. Because according to the law of Moses, the promised land is a sacred inheritance. Property is not to leave the family. God doesn't want his people going outside the bloodline to get help. If they fell into debt, one of their own kin is supposed to redeem the property. Hanamel is essentially asking Jeremiah to be his kinsman redeemer which, if you remember, is one of the themes of the book of Ruth. So no doubt Jeremiah's realtor would have counseled him against accepting this offer. The family farm is on the outskirts of Jerusalem in Anathoth, which is Jeremiah's hometown, which at that very moment has Babylonians camped on it. It is enemy-occupied territory. It's a bad time to buy. And Jeremiah buys it anyway. He scrapes together the money for a down payment, looks over the terms, signed the deed, had it notarized, took it to the title office. Duplicate copies were made, one for inspection and one sealed in case of a later dispute. This is more or less how real estate transactions are settled today, which is a reminder the people of the Bible lived in the real world. Then, as now, buying property is too important to rely on a handshake. But why does Jeremiah do it? Well, for starters, because God told them to, which is a good reason to do anything. But there's more to the deal than sheer obedience. It's great faith that led him to buy the field. If you look all the way down at verse 15, it says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. It may be a bad time to buy, but Jeremiah has a good reason to buy. Eventually, God is going to bring his people back from exile. And despite the war and the siege and the destruction of Jerusalem and the 70 years of captivity, it's a buyer's market for those who trust God's promise. And Jeremiah believes. He's willing to take the long view. And yet, as you can imagine, it still feels like a pretty dumb thing to do. And there's lots of doubts as to why God has told him to do this. So he takes his doubts to God, and that's good. 
But the words you think he's going to say, Lord, why am I buying land I'll never use? Those words don't come out of his mouth. And so at first glance, it looks like a good time for a bad prayer. A good time for a bad prayer. Picking up at verse 16. After I'd given the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God. We tend to read that as sort of uh, acknowledgement. But most of the time in the Bible, when you see that phrase, happens a lot, hundreds of times in the Old Testament. Ah, Lord God is more a cry of desperation. It's a cry of puzzlement, bewilderment. He's not like, oh, this is great to see you again. It's like, okay, God, I don't get it. And so he starts with, ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, Great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. You have shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, and to this day in Israel and among all mankind, you have made a name for yourself as at this day. You brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and outstretched arm, and with great terror. And you gave them this land, which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they entered and took possession of it, but they did not obey your voice and walk in your law. They did nothing of all you commanded them to do. Therefore you have made all this disaster come upon them. Behold, the siege mounds have come up to the city to take it. And because of sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass, and behold, you see it. Yet you, O Lord, have said to me, Buy the field for money and get witnesses, though the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. So as soon as the prophet puts his money where his mouth is, he turns to the Lord in prayer. And it's a prayer for the bewildered. It's a prayer for the doubter. It's a prayer for the struggler. For 40 years, Jeremiah preached the destruction of Jerusalem. But now that the city's about to be overrun, God tells him to buy land. And Jeremiah obeys the Lord, but he has second thoughts. So he takes his doubts to the Lord in prayer. And there's four parts to his prayer, and they should be listed there in your outline. First comes, he cries out to God, verse 17. Ah, Lord God. This is a cry from the soul. Jeremiah often did this when he was struggling. His prayers usually begin this way. Ah, Lord God. When he was first called by God, he said it. When he was given the first time he was given the message of Jerusalem's fall and Judah's exile, he said it. When all the political and religious leaders started to oppose him, he said it. Whenever Jeremiah has a spiritual crisis... Whenever he didn't know what the Lord wanted him to do, whenever he was worried about the future, whenever he was being attacked by his enemies, he cried out to the Lord, Ah, Lord God. It's appropriate to begin some prayers 
by crying out to God. Second, he praises God for his mighty acts. He starts with God's mighty act of creation, verse 17. It is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. The Lord made everything that is. He made the heavens and the earth, which is another way of saying he made the entire universe. He made the moon, stars, planets, and galaxies. He made the birds, the bugs, and the beasts. He made the trees, the bushes, the flowers, and the plants. He did not make these hats. But without God, nothing was made that has been made. The other mighty act that Jeremiah mentions is redemption. He gives a short history lesson, how God brought his people out of Egypt, starting at verse 20. He says, you've shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, and to this day in Israel and among all mankind, and have made a name for yourself as at this day. You brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and outstretched arm and with great terror, and you gave them this land which you swore to their fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. So he has in mind all the miracles of Moses and the plagues on the Egyptians. He remembers that God not only brought his people out of Egypt, he brought them into the promised land. And he did it by his own strength with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. <coughs> and so we see God's praised as both creator and redeemer. When the Christian praises God as redeemer, he praises God for our redemption in Christ. John Calvin emphasized this way he organized his great work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, because the first half concerns the knowledge of God, the creator, and the second half teaches the knowledge of God, the redeemer in Christ. To redeem means to buy back. God has redeemed his people from sin and death through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Paul says later in Ephesians 1, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Anyone who's made in the image of God can praise God as creator, but everyone who believes in Christ for salvation can praise him as redeemer. Third, Jeremiah worships him for his glorious attributes. He doesn't just praise him for what he does, but also for who he is. He crams as many of God's attributes as possible into two and a half verses. He starts with God's omnipotence, verse 17. Nothing is too hard for you. Whatever the task, God can handle it. No limitations, nothing is too difficult for him. And next he worships God for his love, his covenant love. Verse 18, you show steadfast love to thousands. Believers have been showered with the love of God throughout history across the globe. And Jeremiah's love to thousands echoes the second commandment, which speaks of God showing love to thousands of those who love him and obey him. He also echoes the second commandment when he praises God for his justice. He says, you show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. That comes right from the second commandment. And then in verse 19, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. God's praise for maintaining his holiness by judging sin, even the sins of his own people. So he doesn't let anybody off the hook. 
And finally, he worships God for knowing all things. Verse 19, your eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man. Jeremiah is reminded of God's universal knowledge or omniscience. When his cousin Hanamel shows up at his prison cell, God knew all about the visit even before it happened, as he always does. So we have this prayer that's rich in its praise of the attributes of God. Jeremiah worships God for his omnipotence and omniscience, for his love and his justice. It's highly theological, informed by his rich understanding of God. Same thing ought to be true of our prayers. You need some biblical theology before you can have this kind of prayer life. You have to know the character of God before you're able to pray like this. And honestly, too many of our prayers are superficial and expressing the character of God. They ought to be saturated with his attributes. The final part of Jeremiah's prayer concerns his situation. It's worth noticing the proportions of his prayer. Just look again at that prayer. He spends more time praising God than he does talking about his problems. John Guest says, Uh, in his commentary, that he offered seven parts of praise to one part puzzlement. And that comes right at the very end, verse 24. He says, Behold, the siege mounts have come up to the city to take it. And because of sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass, and behold, you see it. Yet you, O Lord, have said to me, Buy the field for money and get witnesses though the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. What's the point of Jeremiah's prayer? Because if you read the whole thing, you realize he didn't actually ask for anything. He simply told God what God already knew, namely that the Babylonian siege engines were at the gates and he had just made the worst financial decision of his life. And that's why most people think this is a bad prayer. Jeremiah calls attention to the fact that God told him to buy the field, even though it doesn't take a genius to figure out Jerusalem's on the verge of destruction. And he's just puzzled by the whole thing. He doesn't understand what God's doing. And so his prayer sort of ends with a question mark. You're really telling me to invest in real estate, Lord, seriously? But perhaps Jeremiah didn't even get that far. He didn't even make it to the question mark. It almost sounds as as if he ran out of prayer before he figured out what to pray, which is the way puzzled prayers often end. And Jeremiah's example shows the value of praying with an informed view of God, especially during desperate times. To approach God with a right sense of power, love, justice, and knowledge And you'll find the faith to trust him, even if he tells you to fork over 17 shekels to your crazy cousin, Hanamel. Of course, the only one who doesn't get puzzled is God, which brings us to verse 26, and a bad time for a hard answer. A bad time for a hard answer. Starting at verse 26, we read, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am given this city into the hands of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. 
The Chaldeans who are fighting against this city shall come and set this city on fire and burn it with the houses on whose roofs offerings have been made to Baal and drink offerings have been poured out to other gods to provoke me to anger. (coughs) For the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. The children of Israel have done nothing but provoke me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. This city has aroused my anger and wrath from the day it was built to this day, so that I will remove it from my sight. Because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah that they did to provoke me to anger, their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they have turned to me their back and not their face. And though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. They set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech, though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. So God starts by reminding Jeremiah of something that Jeremiah's already said. Verse 26, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Well, Jeremiah's already said nothing is too hard for you in his prayer. So God's answer is essentially, that's right, Jeremiah, you have the right God. If only Jeremiah would listen to his own prayer, he would be able to answer his own question. Nothing is too difficult for God. If God says he'll rebuild Jerusalem, he'll rebuild Jerusalem. If God says it's a good time to buy, it's a buyer's market. So God goes on to remind Jeremiah of what he's told them numerous times. The people have sinned, they refuse to repent, so he's bringing judgment. Starting at verse 30, the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. And it just goes on and on and on. But you get the point. He's just pointing out all of their sin. And their sin at every level of society. The politicians were evil. The religious leaders were evil. The people were evil. There was no one righteous. No, not one. And not only is their sin at every level, their sin at every place. Especially the sin of idolatry. Even from their rooftops. The people are making gods with their own hands and then bowing down to them on top of their homes, which is why he says when they burn the city, they're starting with your roofs because that's where you are committing this gross idolatry. We're going to burn that first. Baal worship is everywhere. The city is awash in idolatry. But if you think about it, The same thing could be said of the post-Christian West. True, not many people are burning incense to Baal on their roof. But God wouldn't have any trouble identifying the idols we worship in our homes and on our streets. Money, sex, power, and self, along with a whole host of others. What idols would God find in the church? The sins of Jeremiah's day were not just the sins of secular people. They were also the sins of God's people. Under King Manasseh, it was the religious people who erected altars to Baals. 
And such worship is highly offensive to God. And with this obvious sense of horror, he says, verse 34, they set up abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it. He says, it's one thing that you're committing idolatry in your house, but you're committing idolatry in my house. And Christians commit the same sins when we carry our idols into church. We claim to be followers of Christ, and yet many are still worshiping other things, fashion, intellect, luxury, privacy. One form of idolatry is so despicable that Jeremiah singles it out for special mention. It symbolizes the moral bankruptcy of the entire culture. Now, he's preached an entire sermon on this in the Valley of Slaughter back at the end of chapter 7. He mentioned it again in chapter 19 when he shattered a clay jar outside the gate. And it's the sin of infanticide. Verse 35. They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom. That's where people get buried. To offer up their sons and daughters to Molech, though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. In an attempt to to appease Baal, Jeremiah's neighbors were offering their sons and daughters as human sacrifices. No wonder God says he wants Jerusalem out of his sight. One of the things, it doesn't necessarily say these are really bad people. It does say they took their false religion very seriously. Now, they didn't celebrate Mother's Day back then. It's an American invention. But can you imagine mothers bringing up their daughters and placing them on a burning pyre because this false God demanded that? I can't imagine that, but it happened by the thousands in that culture. And God says it's so evil, even he didn't think of it. He says, it didn't enter into my mind. The moral worth of a culture is not determined by how it treats the strong or the rich or the beautiful, but by how it treats the weak and the poor and the vulnerable. What can we say about a culture that takes the lives of its own children, whether inside or outside the womb, or about a culture that makes allowances for assisted suicide? What can we say, in other words, about the post-Christian culture of death that's sort of rolling over the West in way more ways than I can even uh, spell out or imagine today. If God is really God and he really hates sin and he's going to punish it, both in this life and the next, it says he's the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is it too hard for him to overthrow any person, city, or nation that sets itself up against his will? If nothing is too hard for God, then he will and must punish sin. But then God says something totally unexpected. We've just seen the power of God to judge sin. But then we end with the power of God to save sinners, which means it's a good time for an old promise, a good time for an old promise, starting at verse 36 to the end. 
Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land of faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. Fields shall be bought in this land of which you are saying it is a desolation. Without man or beast, it is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Fields shall be bought for money, and deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin and the places about Jerusalem and in the cities of Judah and the hill, cities of the hill country and the cities of the Shephelah and the cities of the Negev. For I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. So once again, God promises to bring them back from exile. It's totally illogical. There is no logical flow from verse 35 to verse 36. As it's, it's as if God is saying, you are despicable sinners and I'm going to judge you in my wrath. Therefore, I will never stop doing good to you. What? That makes no sense. But what's logical about the grace of God? Where's the logic and the free grace of the gospel for guilty sinners? Where's the logic in God sending his son to die on the cross for our sins? Where's the logic in adopting his bitter enemies as his own sons and daughters? Such grace seems impossible. But if we've learned anything from this chapter, nothing is impossible for God. The rest of Jeremiah 32 is full of illogical, but impossible, but not impossible, grace. It is God's agenda for saving sinners. First, God promises to bring his people home. Verse 37, Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them. In my anger and my wrath and in great indignation, I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety. God promises the end of the exile. God's people are scattered, but he is going to gather them and bring them home. Second, he promises to make his people his own. Verse 38, they shall be my people and I will be their God. We read that in Ezekiel 36 in our call to worship this morning. God would maintain this love relationship with his people. They would belong to him and he would belong to them. That's the central promise of the covenant. We have a God and we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Third, God promises to give his people a new heart. Verse 39, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. This is the doctrine of the new birth, also known as conversion or regeneration. Anyone who becomes a Christian receives a new heart, and God is the one who performs the transplant. 
A heart for God doesn't grow on his own. It comes from the Holy Spirit. And everyone who turns away from sin and comes to Christ receives a new heart from and for God. And this new heart for God is something that all God's people share. It says they'll have one heart and one way. That promise is fulfilled in the book of Acts. We see at the first church in Jerusalem in Acts 4, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Whenever the hearts of God's people beat as one, whenever they walk in the same direction, following God, they experience the communion of the saints. Fourth, God promised to continue his covenant with his people. Verse 40, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. The new covenant will never end. All of God's illogical, almost impossible promises will last forever. The reason God's new covenant lasts forever is that it's established by the blood of Christ shed for many for the remission of sins. The end of Jeremiah 32 brings the power of God's grace then down to the personal level. His grace isn't just for the whole nation of Israel. It's also for Jeremiah, who's still languishing in a Jerusalem prison. And God knew that Jeremiah had just bought a field that seems like a bad investment. And so he reassures him it's all for the best. At the very end, he says, For thus says the Lord, Just as I brought this great disaster upon these people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. And verse 43, Field shall be bought in this land. Verse 44, Field shall be bought for money, and deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed. And he ends with, for I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. God promises that one day things in Jerusalem will return to normal. The economy will stabilize. Property values will return. It will become a seller's market once again. And then the 17 shekels that Jeremiah plunked down to buy this field would be a great investment because God always keeps his promises. So let's end where we started. I said at the beginning there were four redemption stories in the movie Field of Dreams. The first one was for Shoeless Joe Jackson. The second one is for Ray Kinsella. It comes near the end of the movie. He'd had a number of adventures, one of which was getting the famous writer Terrence Mann to come to his cornfield ball field in Iowa. Terrence Mann is played by the great James Earl Jones. And just when all seems lost, and Ray is going to lose the farm and lose his dream. Terrence Mann walks out onto the field and turns around. And he faces Ray with all those old ball players behind him. And he gives one of the greatest baseball speeches of all time. James Earl Jones says he took the part so that he could give this speech. And he faces Ray and he says, pretend it's the voice of James Earl Jones. <laughs> Ray, people will come, Ray. They'll come to Iowa for reasons they can't even fathom. They'll turn up in your driveway not knowing for sure why they're doing it. They'll arrive at your door as innocent as children longing for the past. Of course we won't mind if you have a look around. You'll say it's only $20 per person. They'll pass over the money without even thinking about it. For it's money they have and peace they lack. And they'll walk out to the bleachers and sit in shirt sleeves on a perfect afternoon. 
and they'll find they have reserved seats somewhere along one of the baselines where they sat when they were children and cheered their heroes. And they'll watch the game, and it'll be as if they had dipped themselves in magic waters. The memories will be so thick they'll have to brush them away from their faces. The one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. America has rolled by like an army of steamrollers. It has been erased like a blackboard, rebuilt and erased again. But baseball has marked the time. This field, this game is part of our past, Ray. It reminds us of all that once was good and could be again. Oh, people will come, Ray. People will most definitely come. And that's what God is telling Jeremiah. Jeremiah can't see the ending. And from what we know, he never does. The exile doesn't end until after his life, and this book is over. But speaking about a different field, he's being told, if you will buy it, they will come back. And that might be the voice of the Lord. But the vision of its future has nothing to do with returning players or future guests. But returning generations of former exiles. Not the ghosts of a glorious past, but the reality of a guaranteed future. God reassures Jeremiah that even though everything seems hopeless, after 70 years of captivity, God will bring his people back and there will be great rejoicing. And part of the question when you come to the end of a long text like this is, do you believe that he can do that with you? Can he do that with all the issues of your life? Do you doubt the power of God to work in and through your life? You may doubt that your marriage can be saved. You may doubt that your sin can be overcome. You may doubt that loved one will ever be saved. You may doubt that God could bless your work, your family, your ministry, or your life. It's just too hard, it's too much, it's too far gone, and it's taken way too long. It's totally illogical, and such grace seems impossible. But if we've seen anything this morning, nothing is impossible for God. Do you believe that? And will you believe that? Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that once again you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we confess to you that we are people who've come in here this morning tired, weary over our struggles, weary over our worry, weary in doubting whether or not you can actually change our lives, weary in doubting whether or not any of this actually works. So, Father, I pray that in light of who you are and what you've said, that in light of how you're supreme over all things, that in light of knowing that nothing is impossible for God, 
that we might trust you're really at work in our messy lives right now. And that as difficult as our situation may be, enable us to trust that you're at work in our midst, even if we can't see the outcome. Forgive us for our lack of faith. Forgive us for being overwhelmed by our own fears. And work in each of us this year, this summer, as we live with the prophet Jeremiah, as we see what he sees and hear what he hears, teach us to respond with greater faith, a renewed confidence in your word, and an ever-increasing trust in your great and precious promises. And through those things, to draw us ever closer to your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Hear God's blessing from Hebrews chapter 6. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. God bless you. Happy Mother's Day. We'll see you next week. Happy Mother's Day. Mom.